I'm, by the way, Bill Anderson, uh, supervisor of the Fort Massachusetts School District on Long Island. I'm Lillian Carey. I'm the director of languages other than English uh, for the Hopox School District, <coughs> a district just over the border in Suffolk County on Long Island. And I'm Al Martino, and I'm the instructional administrator for the programs of World Languages and Cultures and ESL in the Gilderland Central School District, which is just outside of Albania, New York. Albany. <laughs> I refer to it as Albania, sorry. <laughs> I have to make it cultural. <laughs> a lot of Albanian students, but anyway, I'm sorry. It's just, I'm sorry, I just always call it Albania. Hi, good morning. I'm Rosa Richie Piatanz. I'm on the faculty of Steinhardt School of Education, Culture, and Human Development at uh, NYU. And uh, in addition to teaching courses, I also work very closely with student teaching placements and courses for future teachers of ESL and foreign languages. And I'm a former um, assistant principal of foreign languages in New York City. Good morning. My name is Ken Hughes. Uh, I'm a former French and Spanish teacher of eight years, and I currently hold the position of K-12 principal at Elizabethtown Lewis Central School District, which is an hour north of Lake George, uh, 30 minutes east of Lake Placid. It's a very small district, uh, 310 students, K-12. through 12. So. Okay, as you know, this is a roundtable, so we're going to hit some um, hot-button <laughs> issues, go through, kind of give some of our perspective, our opinions, our thoughts. Um, but, of course, the participants are more than welcome to participate, chime in, um, ask questions, uh, give your own opinions, thoughts. We're all practitioners, so we all know the deal. So feel free to um, participate. Uh, our first topic we're going to talk about is recruitment, which we all know can be a challenge at times, although not necessarily during this economy with all the um, accessing that's happened. There's been, I think the pool has been a little bit larger. but. Um, we're going to go through and talk about uh, recruiting and some of the um, challenges and some of the things that we're looking for when we're recruiting. Um, if anyone would like to pick it up first, Lynn? Um, well, I feel like I'm very lucky living on Long Island. We have a very tight-knit community among these, these second language administrators. We have a listserv, and it's our I think we'll all agree it's really our salvation because when we have a need, we can just kind of say, I need a, a replacement, you know, beginning in March. and and we'll help each other. Uh, a few years ago, it was a little cutthroat. <laughs> kept our, our candidates close to our vest, but that's been really good. And of course, I think we all have really good contacts with people like Rosa and Al who work with student teachers, and we'll call them and try to bring in a student teacher where possible so that we you know, have someone in the school working that we can see and train and get to know. So those are two avenues I use. Um, our school district, um, adheres to the OLAS website, olasjobs.org. So unfortunately, that's we. I have to use that service first in, in the recruitment process, and I am the person that does the recruitment for the program. I also teach, I'm on staff at SUNY Albany as well as the College of St. Rose. So the other way that I do recruitment is by making sure I know who all those people are in the program and making sure that they get placements in my school district. And then, of course, I end up having to supervise them as well, but that then gives me a leg up on them so that I get a chance to see um, firsthand how they're developing because they are neophytes, they're inexperienced usually or not. But um, I would like to comment on something you said, Bill, um, that even though the economy is pretty bad, you might think that there are more candidates out there, but um, in upstate New York, that, not is, that is not always the case. And what is happening is just because there are maybe some people who've been accessed to another program, they still have to be interviewed, they still have to match what I look for as a professional 
in, in my district, and my culture may be different. Um, well, first of all, working for me is different anyways. I mean, you can only imagine. But um, So there may be a lot of people there, and it's been a little challenging because people have almost assumed in coming to the interview process, oh, I was just excess. I've got 10 years' experience. You're just going to hire me. And so that has been an, an attitude thing that I've had to deal with in the recruitment process, uh, an, an unusual situation to have to think about. But it happened three times, this, three times in the spring to me. You know, for us, the, the topic of recruitment is also, you know, how do we get more students to enroll in university programs, in foreign language programs. So as they hear the economy or position's not there, you know, they, they tend to stay away from enrolling in programs that they're going to become future teachers of French or Italian and Spanish and so forth. So it's, so it, it's sort of, you know, really working with the schools, working with the uh, Department of Education and Vivian Salonikas, who has been a trailblazer for foreign languages at, in New York City, you know, working together with colleagues, you know, to really identify where positions are available. One of the things that we've actually started is this wonderful network. People send me emails from all different listservs and say, okay, we have positions here. We put it out to our students. We put it out on listservs. We let people know that they're, you know, of the opportunities that are there. Um, what we're finding now is, for example, teachers of Chinese, we have a program at NYU where we're developing future teachers of Chinese that are certified. They're getting positions very quickly before they're even graduating. Um, and it's so for them, the positions are there, and, and they're actually traveling upstate too. So they're traveling to other, um, to other states as well. And uh, the program is in its third year. Um, we'll be certifying another 10 teachers this year. So for the people enrolled in that program, they've been very successful. For those that, um, for some of our Spanish teachers, Italian teachers, French, and other languages, um, we really have been encouraging them to look at the charter schools too. We have many, many charter schools in New York City. And they do, were not uh, subject to the hiring restrictions that our, our city schools were, you know, um, were on, uh, actually had to adhere to these uh, hiring freezes. The um, other piece is actually new schools in New York City can take candidates that are um, not, you know, they can really work outside of the restrictions so that they can uh, hire teachers that uh, are actually, you know, recently receiving uh, their degrees from the university. So for us, it's trying to stay in touch of what's the job market, what are the hiring restrictions, where can we find positions for them, and really, you know, opening up these job avenues. But in terms of recruitment, how we're preparing the, the, them to actually interview with other candidates has become more of our responsibility. We're saying, in addition to having your portfolio, we are going through resume review sessions with them. We are actually then doing mock interviews with them before they're graduating. And to do that so that when they're ready to go out, you know, they, they've had this experience already. You know, and, and actually, you know, even doing the demo lessons, we'll go through those lessons with them. You know, are you matching the, the lesson and the levels you plan to teach on that demo with the students that you'll be teaching. So it's actually helping them before they graduate to actually look at those job opportunities and how do we prepare them for those interviews. I really am glad I'm on this panel because my experience is so different than I think your experiences Or I mean, in my situation, I have more deer than I have kids, uh, which is not an exaggeration. Um, like I said, I'm in the middle of the Adirondack Mountains. Um, all 46 high peaks are within a half an hour of my doorstep. Um, so recruiting is very difficult because there's three, three areas to New York State. There's downstate, there's upstate, and what's the third? Northern. Well, yeah, northern New York. You know, um, and we are not, I don't consider ourselves upstate, I consider ourselves northern New York. And if you talk to any administrator or educator who works above the thruway, I would say above, like, uh, 
um, you know, above Syracuse, above Lake George, Glens Falls area. They say that they are northern New York. I don't consider myself upstate. Um, so recruiting is very, very difficult. And when, last night, if you were at the raffle, and I, I may mention that I have a, a job opening next year for French, I'm not kidding. I have a job opening in French. I'm not making that up. Um, it's very difficult for us to recruit because we do not have the, the OLAF service, which is a, uh, a paid service through BOCES. Um, I would love to have something like that, but we just can't justify it because we, we didn't have any openings this year for any new jobs, not one. And we laid off six positions last year because we were $400,000 in the hole. Um, so it's, it's difficult for us, uh, and we have to get creative. Um, for those of you who know uh, Jody LaRock, who is a former board member for Felt, she is my French teacher. Uh, she's in her last year, last year, and she'll be leaving us. So we need, I need to find somebody who's... Uh, dynamic, who's energetic, who can take all the great work that she's done and move it forward. Uh, in terms of trying to recruit, I come to these type of events. Um, that's why I still stay nice felt selfishly uh, <laughs> to, uh, to keep myself connected to the profession. So I want to I remember what it's like to be in the classroom. I think that's extremely important. But also to say, hey, who do you know? Hey, anybody want to come up to the woods uh, and, and teach? It's a pretty sweet gig. Um, but uh, we use... Uh, uh, we use a, a system that uh, we put, I, and I don't remember the name of it. I'm sorry, but uh, it's a system where it'll 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 send it out to a company that'll send it out to like every newspaper in New York State. So for the big positions, and I'm assuming that we'll do that because we have to have a French teacher. We will uh, we'll use that system. So we we'll go to Buffalo, we we'll go to Rochester, we'll go to Syracuse, we we'll go to Binghamton, we we'll go to Watertown, we we'll go to the Times Union, the Schenectady Gazette, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we also use our own personal website, uh, the Elizabethtown Lewis Central School District website, to, to post things there. Our own local newspaper. We sometimes hit the Lake Placid, um, and of course, uh, Nice Felt. And I'm going to give a plug here because I'm responsible for it. Has the job placement listserv, um, which is a very handy tool. If for for school districts, you don't need to be a member to advertise on it. Uh, any school district can go to nicefelt.org/jobs. Put in all the information, the FTE, the duration, the language preference, the contact information, and then once they hit send, it comes to me as the job placement chairperson, and then I email that out to the job placement listserv, which you do have to be a member for, and then you can be one of the first people in New York State to receive information about those uh, about those job openings. So um, it is difficult. We will prevail. We will find somebody, and um, but it's it's great to be on this panel because we have uh, we have city. We have the island, we have uh, upstate. upstate, upstate, and we have, you know, northern New York. So it's, uh, uh, you know, each one of us has a different, we all have the same needs, but how we go about fulfilling those needs is all, is all very different, so. I think what Al said was the crucial piece is establishing those relationships with the post-secondary institutions and finding those student teachers. I mean, we're, we're lucky. We have um, at least 10 colleges and universities on Long Island and New York City that have foreign language teacher prep programs. So we are constantly getting, oh, here we um, some will do student observation, some will do student teaching, and actually getting the opportunity to see them in action, to see them growing and developing, and having that known quantity instead of just a resume that you happen to get um, in the mail. So I think that is a piece that I think is overlooked by many districts or supervisors. Um, and it's hard. You need to find teachers, your teachers, who are willing to I just want to piggyback on what Ken said to events like this. Like we have also, in addition to NYSEFA on Long Island, you know, you and I, we've attended um, 
our LILT um, language competitions as the judges and our regional, and those places is always a posting board. And, and it's I, actually, I was in desperate need of a, a lead replacement, and, and that day at the, at the judging, I got someone. So again, it's, it's being out there and, and, and being involved. And that's a great segue into the second point in here. What qualities do you look for in a candidate? I mean, for me, if, mm -hmm. if, if I may, uh, for me, I need someone who is awesome for kids. I mean, number one, got to be great for kids. I have to be able to trust that person to babysit my own children. That's what I look for first. And then second, they, get, they need to be a master in their content area, and they need to be able to speak their language. Uh, they need to be able to know about culture. They need to be uh, infused in that, know how to integrate it in multiple areas, uh, understand the standards, understand the curriculums, understand what the needs are. And then after that, uh, if I get those two things, I'm definitely calling that person back for a second interview. And then we'll, we'll whittle down to find out who the best fit is. And that's really, really very important. You might have somebody who's a great speaker and knows their content area, but they've got to be a great fit for that school. And, and every school district, I mean, you could be have a school district 10 miles away, and the fit could be completely different than what you have in your own district. So, um, and I use my own personal examples. When I was trying to become an assistant principal and principal, I interviewed a lot of places that I thought, I was a good fit, but I'm so glad I didn't get those jobs because it just wasn't the right fit. Now I'm in the right fit, you know, and, and, and that works for, for language, any, any teacher of any curriculum area, in my, in my opinion. Yeah, just to, um, as you said, when you're interviewing candidates, more and more of our schools in New York City actually put together a personnel hiring teams where it's a team of people that are going to be doing the interviews. So you may, in a high school, you even may have high school students interviewing. You'll have parents, you'll have colleagues, so that you'll, you'll get the opinion of others because this is a person they're going to be working with. You know, do they see somebody who's flexible? They, we look a lot for flexibility, you know, and uh, to be able to, you know, to work collaboratively, you know, with others and this interest in, you know, person interested in professional development. And, you know, Francesca, that, that's, that the question that you bring up is actually one that, that um, I've been working with too with some of our teachers who really need to improve their language skills but the courses that are offered where you know in for the foreign language are not part of the Steinhardt School of Education they're in the Faculty of Arts and Science so they're getting their their language courses there and we're on another side and we really don't communicate with those programs so that that's been an issue that we're actually encountering more and more and that we need to come to some solutions with uh, the first question I uh, we'd also do interview teams course. The first question that I ask always is very rudimentary, and I say, why did you want to become a teacher? And my teachers and all my panels now know me well enough to know that if I don't hear the key words that I want to work with children, that they're history. And I don't care about their native language speaking skills. I don't care if they've got a PhD in Cosa. I don't care. Mm -hmm. Because I can fix the language piece. If they come to me with less than perfect language, I can do something with that. You know, that's one area that I can help them in. I cannot help you if you don't care about working with kids. That's an intrinsic value, and that is very difficult to work with. I mean, you know, I can sit you down once a week, and we can go over grammar if that's what the issue is, or we can go over communications. I can encourage them to travel. You know, I can make those, avail those offers available to them and show them what they can do. Um, but on, and I agree, the foreign language fluency is important, but I think we need to be not so um, um, prudish to think that that's all that we're doing. We've got to be very careful because, you know, we are heading into a different era these days, and I think we, we run the risk of creating an environment in which the only people left who are teaching and the only students who are with us are of a different class. You know, back in the, in the 50s and the 60s, the only kids that took languages were the accelerated kids. 
the creme de la creme. So I always ask that silly little question, and my teachers crack up because they know I'm waiting for the right words. That's and when they don't, with that, when I don't hear that, you know, I'm not interested. I am not interested in the candidate, and I, I don't care how if they came out of an NK-approved school because SUNY Albany is NK. I'm going through that right now on the faculty, all that paperwork and stuff. So I understand that. And I also interview them to get into the master's program there, um, which used to be the, the MSSE program. And um, if they don't have good language skills, I mean, we do. I and mean, this is the place where they need to leave. And they need to exit then. And we, need, we put it as a deficiency on their, on, their, on their entrance if we accept them, if the other qualities are there, that they must get some more outside experience as in a broad program. So I can do it that way. I have the capacity mm -hmm. to encourage the foreign language skill through my working with SUNY Albany. But when they come to me for a job, I do look at it a little differently. I'm, I'm looking at people who work with kids. Because idea, you know, folks, it's what you do in the classroom that's going to sustain mm -hmm. our programs in the next 30 years. It isn't being fluent in French, Spanish, or Latin. It's, it's the ability to be able to work with kids and inspire them. So that's how I come. I come at it. If you know me, you know I always come at things a little differently, and so that's how my program's kind of been created, and I and it's still and it works for me. And you know, in addition, it's, it's the ability to work with a diverse kind of kid. Oh, yeah, you know, it's absolutely. because it's mm -hmm. no longer the clem de la clem. Like I had a position open for it was just a point two, right before school started, and it was a ninth period level two, and I knew the way our scheduling goes, that was going to be a really tough class to manage. So the teacher that does that class has to love working with kids and has to know how to deal with a, a real wide ability group, you know, those that don't like it. So you try in the interview or in the demo to see, you know, can they engage the kids? Can they reach those kids that are tuned out? Can they still challenge the, the kids who have it and are ready to go? So it's, it's how can they work with all these kids that we, we know that exist in our classes and keep them engaged because we lose them. If they're not engaged and liking what we do, we lose them. And so that's a key. Right now, we have to be advocates for our, our, our course area. I agree with Al. I think it's a fine line because I can teach that teacher the language, but I, it's more challenging for me to teach that teacher how to develop rapport with kids right. or how to become self-reflective of your own teaching. That is such right. a hard skill to teach. But the language here, like you said, let's sit down, let's go over the preterite this week and re remind you of all the irregulars. That's, that's easy. Mm -hmm. I just want to mention that NYU started a um, French in Paris program for future teachers. So a group of 12 just came back, and they're now in their senior year or their last semester, where they've actually spent a semester abroad in France, and they're going to be future teachers of French. So it, it, they'll be doing that for Spanish as well. So it's just a way to sort of prepare them more for the language, the fluency, and you know, answer some of those questions. I just want to say that for me, oh, living... Uh, someone living abroad is not a deal breaker. For, you know, not living abroad or living abroad is not a deal breaker for me. Obviously, it's for me, it's a, it's a plus. But it's if I have somebody who I think is a real go-getter kind of person, and I want to go back to what Tony Tyson said last night. You got to connect them in, in their way, mm -hmm. <laughs> and I need teachers who are going to connect in in those in the way of our, their former or their future students, not in the way that they learned. Because I think the way to engage those kids after checkpoint B is a very different way than we did five, even ten years ago, you know, um, the integration of technology. Now, I'm a technology guy, so to have somebody come in and say, oh, I love language teaching, I love kids, and I love technology, and here's how I want to integrate it, for me, that's that's the, that's the triple play right there for me. Um, I'm really going to look at somebody like that, but 
keeping kids in, in, involved and engaged is not by doing papers for just the teacher. It's about blogging. It's about wikis. It's about podcasting like we're doing right now. It's about all of those types of interactive uh, things that allow students to connect with other people in a meaningful way. So uh, I just want to put that out there. question. It's even more critical because we don't tend to get um, special education support. You know, mm-hmm. whereas, you know, social studies teachers, ELA and math, there'll be either a lab class or there'll be a resource room or there'll be... co teaching re- Right. Mm-hmm. We don't have that. So we have to be our own resource people and our yeah, yes. we like, have to differentiate in our classes. Right. So it's a critical skill for right. us. That's why they drown when they right. Well, I want to just uh, respond to that because there is a course um, at NYU that future teachers have to take on special education and differentiating instruction. And we actually now prepared it to be an, um, a hybrid model, which is um, an in-person seminars followed by online components. And the feeling is, well, what, is future teachers need to see what an IEP is before they leave school. They need to be part of an IEP team. They need to have simulations of what these things look like. There's so many different things and how do they group students with different learning abilities. But it's also they need to know, let's look at data. How do I group my students according to data? Are we exposing them to the data systems that the teachers are using? One of the questions I'm asking our supervisors to look at in Teachers of Methods courses, ask the student teachers. Have they looked at the data of the students in their classroom? How, how do they use it? You know, and d- does the teacher actually say, okay, sign on with me and let's look through it? The other thing is also preparing them for the technology. Are the classrooms that they're being assigned to, okay, so there's a smart board, is it being used, you know, rather than just a you know, projector or a white screen? You know, how is the teacher using technology in the classroom? So the, the classrooms that we send our student teachers to, you know, it, at times it isn't the most perfect classroom that we want them to really learn from. But sometimes it's the willingness of a teacher to say, yeah, I want a student teacher. I'd like to work with a student teacher. And so it, it, it's so many different factors. So we're saying, yes, we've got to expose them to technology. We have to work with differentiation, data systems. I mean, they, they're, you know, the value-added component right now, as teachers are graduating, they know they're going to be assessed based on their student performance. There's so many different factors now in teacher preparation. So here we are saying we have to add all these things, but nothing is being removed. So the programs tend to become longer, and we're trying to say, wait a minute, especially at NYU where the course of credits is so high, you say, you know, you can't have them take a 44-credit program. You know, we have to keep reducing. So it's trying to put in all these components together with everything else, but it is something that we're really looking at. And actually, TIAC accreditation that we're I'm co-directing right now. So we should talk. So it's, it's part of... Right, but, but even within that, just to respond to something that you brought up, for example, we'll have a, a student teacher. She's with a cooperating teacher who has a certain set of skills and methodologies that she's embraced and that her school district maybe has embraced. Then we'll have the methods instructor who will have his or her own set of you know, belief systems. Then we'll have a supervisor who goes out to supervise that student teacher who brings his or her own set. So you've got three people working with student teachers, giving them different points of view and different advice. And my concern is, where's the consistency here? What, what messages are we giving future teachers about what instruction should be? And we're facing this right now, where we're trying to bring them together. We have a lot of adjuncts who come, you know, we need adjuncts, you know, because of you know, the nature of the economy. So how, what opportunities do we have to bring them together? You know, to talk about what we're looking for. So there's so many different, you know, layers, but... I think what's important is giving that feedback to those institutions. I know that there is an institution on Long Island. I, I will not take student teachers from this institution any longer. Um, 
the students were coming out, they had no concept of second language acquisition whatsoever. They were getting nothing in theory, and it just uh, astounded me. So that's my way of telling this institution, I, our district will not take student teachers. I know that's not necessarily going to help, but at least it gives that institution feedback. Wait a minute, why is Massapequa not taking our student teachers? And I've let them know this is the reason. So if you if you have a wide choice of institutions, that's great. If you're stuck you because you only have Fredonia or what, you know, wherever you're working out of or um, whatever's in the area, I can't think of what's in the area. I'm, I'm sure we get to students. We get Right, okay, right. So um, it makes it more difficult if, you're, if you have fewer choices. You know, what, I have to respond to what you're, you said, Vivian, because it really um, has been resonating in my mind for the past 10 or 15 years because I, I teach at SUNY New Paltz as well as SUNY Albany at the College of St. Rose, and I hold, I'm a full-time administrator in my district. Um, and what I've discovered is that they are getting the courses that you think that they're not getting. They're getting the special ed courses. They're getting literacy courses. They're getting all of the coursework that we think that they need. The problem is, in my mind, this is just Al's opinion, you know, no one is helping them to transfer what they're learning in a course on literacy strategies into a foreign language classroom. They're, so they go to these literacy courses or these special ed courses. Oh, yeah, they're allowed to do a project, and they always, of right. course, would do the it content. on a foreign language dilemma or situation, but there's no one in the classroom, as in an instructor, who really understands and can look at what this teacher is working on and determine whether it's of any value or are they just make talking fluff. I mean, I still get called to this day about how to make modifications or about the accommodations on the exams. People still don't know what they mean. I mean, you know, what is that about? So I think that there's a component in which the universities have had to respond to raising their standards, and they've added these courses that are appropriate, but that's where they sit. They sit in those courses and the transition, because I find that new teachers have a very difficult time with the, any kind of transition and taking for example, even here at the conference, it has to be explicit. A workshop needs to be very explicit for them. This is what you do. This is how you do it for new teachers to be able to then import that in the classroom. And, there's, you know, and I, I think that's what they're missing. But the other piece might be when they're student teaching, like Rosa mentioned, they might be with a cooperating teacher who doesn't incorporate those strategies herself. So they don't see it modeled and think about it. You know, they have so little practical experience to begin with. The student teaching is just such a short, short time period. And they really are influenced. I mean, of course, they've got their supervisors and their college people, mm -hmm. but they're in a class with a cooperative teacher who may not use a target language, who may not do oh, cooperative learning, who Very may true. not. And then they don't get the practical experience of it. You know, Lou, they use, this is all about economy. I mean, everything that we're sitting here talking about, we really have to put it in the context of the economy. Because SUNY, when I worked at SUNY Oneonta, and I was on staff there as a full-time professor for a while, they, we used to have a program in which we brought in the, the cooperating teachers, and we trained them on how to be cooperating teachers, and we showed them what the expectations I mean, it was a real great in-service, even for people who actually didn't end up taking a student teacher in the end. Maybe we didn't have enough in French and Spanish, but they came, and the in-surface was there, and that all cost money. And so what's happened is they've nipped away at all this stuff, and now you make a phone call, Al, can you give me a student teaching placement? And so I, you know, I look for the best teachers that I have, but let me tell you, good, the best teachers sometimes are not very welcoming of student teachers. So you get the person that wants to help, and you're thinking, 
you know, ooh, this is a B plus here. This isn't an A, an A, you know? I'm going to um, kind of segue into the next one just so that we can keep moving a little bit here. Um, you know, okay, so you've hired that native speaker who loves kids and knows how to use technology. Um, so data. now let's talk a little bit about curriculum development. Uh, either development of curriculum, um, helping the teacher with curriculum, I have a curriculum project right now that I'm undergoing in my school, and it's very interesting from the perspective of an administrator because um, when you have um, a lack of unity in your curriculum, then you end up with all kinds of internal issues. And those issues can become personal issues within the staff. They become issues of lack of cohesiveness and language training. I mean, it, it's, a very, it's a big problem. The problem then is to how do you get the teachers together to do this because curriculum is something that people own. Uh, they, they think they own curriculum. They think that what they're doing behind closed doors is their own business. And there's a certain autonomy that we give teachers. I mean, we give everybody in, in the field of education a certain level of autonomy. So I'm right now trying to do that in my job um, because the curriculum, I, we have a totally written curriculum for middle school. It's totally communicative. I mean, it's, you know, sixth grade is called All About Me. I mean, you know, eighth grade we get into all about the, the world. So, I mean, it's very communicative. But the high school hasn't quite embraced it. And that's kind of typical of middle and secondary schools is that the concept of communicative teaching has gone out the window because they're being driven down by the AP exams and the university and the high school programs. That's another story. But what I'm trying to do is work with my teachers one-on-one -on -one to help create, um, I, I focused in on one level of coursework in, the, in our high school program, and I try to bring them in. I will give them release time, which of course that's becoming a financial issue um, that used to not be so bad in a suburban district, but even now that's being challenged. And I sit there and I actually work with them. I mean, I can't let them work alone. I feel like I have to be there to manage it because if I don't, I end up with people, three teachers teaching the same class, and they're not in agreement. And then it's not fair because I think what I'm doing if I'm not there is I'm putting each one of them in a position to fight for what they think is right. And then it becomes an internal problem. They end up hating each other. I mean, and that's not right. So I feel that in the development of curriculum, it's my responsibility as the instructional administrator to be an intimate part of that process. And yeah, I'm central administration, you know, Francesco, and I'm like, you know, running around to seven buildings, probably not as many as you, but I have to do it. And what ends up happening is it's a really slow process. It doesn't go fast. You know, I, because I can't be there as much as I have to be, but I can't, I don't feel like I can let them it's a really important thing, the curriculum. I have the exact same thing. I really have to be yeah. there. Otherwise, I get caca. I mean, too. Yeah. I mean, and the other problem is, I'm going to connect it back to our previous discussion, is, and I even think back to my own experience, and I think I had a great education, but I really knew very little about developing curriculum. Yeah, that's true. And so now, we're in, um, we brought in a, a curriculum um, developer to talk about backward design and to really redo the way we look at curriculum. That's a paradigm shift for my teachers. And, you know, they don't even really, they've never really been taught how to write curriculum because their idea of writing is to take a textbook and look at the chapters. And really, to tell you the truth, we, we should own what, what we teach, you know, and it should be what, what Tony was talking about, that you teach what they need to know for that for that topic. And we have, she was talking about today, that sometimes we teach so many things, like in middle school, that by the time they get to level two, they don't know anything. Yeah. You know, rather than really drilling down, what do they really need to know? And that's what backward design really is. It's your deciding. You know, in this unit, what do they really, what's, what's, 
do they need to be able to say, listen, read, and write? So that's been a shift that I cannot just let them out and do it. And it, it is very difficult because also I need to, um, they only can write curriculum when they get paid. I understand that. But they are so busy to find the time to get teachers willing to do that and then to it, it's, it's just really difficult. It is. I think it's one of our big challenges as administrators to find. Okay. I hear you. I guess. <laughs> yeah, I do. I think you want to try and word it or do it in a way that you that well, they think it's their idea. Sure. You know, um, which can be very challenging. I know that sometimes you know we talk about slow. Mm -hmm. uh, any change in any school district is slow, and so sometimes if I want to get something, I need to make them think it's their idea and, and kind of word it and phrase it that way. Um, I, I think I would say that, um, you know, if, if you bring an idea back to your department or you're trying to facilitate something, even though you, you say you don't have any real power, I, I think you do have power of, of persuasion in the fact that you've come to an organization like this, you've, you've networked with colleagues from all across New York State, uh, you found some really great ideas, you think this would, would be beneficial, how can we integrate these into what we're trying to do and come up, we'll come up with a consensus. You might not get everything you want, they might not get everything they want, but at least it's, it's multiple ideas coming together, almost like a wiki or something like that, multiple ideas coming together uh, to come up with that, that, core, that core idea. What are the essential questions that we want our kids to be able to answer over the idea of a unit? Uh, talking about, I mean, you guys have the luxury of multiple language teachers. I have one teacher. Who does that one teacher talk to, you know, in my district? Um, fortunately, she's a master teacher, and she's excellent at what she does. And the good news is she can come talk to me, which is great because I love talking curriculum. I, I could talk to about it until I'm blue in the face, especially if it's a, a foreign language curriculum. Um, but we've just started, and I'm sure many of you have done this already, but curriculum mapping. Uh, we, had, we just started last year a curriculum mapping initiative. And let me tell you, when I brought that up to my staff last year, that flew like a lead balloon. Holy cow. Why, why are we doing this? I already know what I'm teaching, blah, 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 blah. And so it's been very difficult for me to help them understand why it's important. And um, so we're talking about essential questions, writing strong essential questions, connecting it back to the curriculum. And so I think to answer your question and to share a little bit of my experiences, help them understand why this is important, why those children need to know this, and hopefully you can come up with some kind of consensus. And maybe you as the chairperson can get together with your administrator, your supervisor, uh, on a one-to-one -one and say, this is what I'm really trying to do, and I'm, I'm looking for your support on this because I believe this because. And so when if it comes back to them that you've already had that one-on-one -on -one conversation, not that that's backhand, not, not, not backhanded, but underhanded. Um, yeah. There's a big difference there. Uh, but you're, you're just trying to support your idea. It's so hard because if you have somebody who's a science teacher who turned administrator or a, somebody just doesn't understand foreign language, you want to hope that they're open enough to accept the ideas and opinions of their experts. Francesco, I just want to throw one idea out. I just looked at some data um, a couple weeks ago, one of our 3,000 data meetings that we're going to, okay? And my head is spinning. And, you know, one of the areas that they looked, that they discovered that was a weakness in many school districts in terms of the ELA assessment was in the area of nonfiction. And mm -hmm. when you think about the readings that we do with our students and then think about the nonfiction aspect, I mean, there needs to be a, just, just a thought. I, I'm, I'm reflecting on it from my own district. Where does that fit in? Research has shown that with the yeah. I just wanted to mention one of the things that I think sometimes the resistance with teachers. We've had you know so many different initiatives, and you know teachers come back to the new essential question, and this is what we're going to work on this year, and the consistency over time. 
of what our expectations are of our teachers. You know, it, it's, um, you know, I'm trying to say, okay, so these are the, the district's essential questions. Are they translated into the principal's essential questions? Do they come down to the department chair? Do they go down to the teacher? So that the expectations of the teachers or what they're preparing is actually reflecting back to those goals into those essential questions. And I think the alignment you know, is really key in getting that right because then you come back the following September and there's a new set of expectations. So I think what we're seeing happening and very, very quickly is this constant change and shift. And now we're doing inquiry in New York City. Everybody has to be part of an inquiry team. Okay, so you're an inquiry team. What is it? So people are going to these teams. and What's an inquiry site? Following it. Okay, what are we doing with this? And the amount of time, do you have time during the day to really work on all of these things? And are we allowing people to work on curriculum during the day? To, you know, are we bringing them together as teams? Because one of the critical things is really the collaboration among you know, colleagues. You know, if you have professional learning communities, and it could be groups of teachers working on grade levels, that they can be writing curriculum together. I think one of the key things is really working together collaboratively to, to really try and answer some of the questions and, are, and yeah, to have the time and to sort of try and build in that time for them to actually come together to do that. And the other thing, too, is also, you know, the intervisitations of teachers, you know, setting up protocols where groups of teachers actually go in to observe each other, and that could be part of your formal observation process. But to do that, to have other people really see what their colleagues are doing, you know, it, it really tries to help say, okay, this is working here, this could possibly work in my classroom. But to try and bring them sort of on a, on a common page and understanding, because you know, if they really don't get to do that, you know, they think that what I'm doing is fine and it's perfect, but you need to go out and see what other teachers are doing and how are they using curriculum. You know, how are they interpreting the standards, what are the students doing, and especially for new teachers, the importance of not only a mentor, but a professional learning community that they can work with. I mean, you provide a great example. You're there and you're providing all these resources. But to look for that for the teachers as well, because sometimes even with, you know, we're hiring them, but to really help them grow to become excellent teachers, we've got to work on that too, and that takes a couple of years. And how much are we focusing on that teacher growth, not just the mentor the first year, but the future growth for their development? I would even suggest allowing those low teachers to see teachers outside of their curriculum area, because there's a lot to be learned, even at different levels. I support that all the time. I think that what an art teacher does might help a language teacher, or what a science teacher does might help a social studies teacher. Um, or a high school person might want to see an elementary program, or vice versa. To, to get some different ideas. You never know what they're going to pull out of those, uh, mm -hmm. out of those meetings. Professional development is the next um, one of the other bullets. I'm kind of short on time, so uh, that was a great segue. Uh, I think that's the important piece as well, providing professional development opportunities, encouraging your teachers or your colleagues to come to events like a nice development conference um, or your regional meetings or bringing in Providing those opportunities and really encouraging them to join the associations. I think that's so key. Um, every, every new teacher I hire, I buy a gift membership to Nicefeld for their first year uh, out of my own pocket. <laughs> um, and hopefully that will encourage them to continue.
continue to be a part of Nice to Help because I think it's important. And I mean, you're all here. You know how important it is. We're preaching to the choir, but. Okay, I put a big plug for Nice to Like what they're doing with the webinars is so huge, mm -hmm. especially if you're in those districts where you don't have a that don't have a local supervisor. Uh, we have them on Long Island too, and those teachers really suffer um, in terms of being mentored and guided by someone who knows our area. But these are great. They're accessible to everyone, and they're reasonable. I think you have to make it something that's going to help them. You know, so for example, if um, you take the maps and say you've had a problem with resources that the same teachers show the same movies over and over again, so you just like one day do the analysis, but the curriculum mapping software is powerful, and it will allow you to show what resources are being used when. But what I plan on doing is that I have the same issues. Like right now, they're so used to the curriculum being on a shelf. And we want it to be that it's it's real and living and breathing and it should change. Um, is that we've had you know departments where we talk about like where we are, there anything you'd like to change and let them just have those discussions. Not actually change, but discussions. And then, you know, when we have writing hours over the summer, they can change it. But the other thing I'm gonna do this time is we're gonna I'm gonna do the analysis of what what skills we're doing when, and have them say, what skills should students have entering ninth grade? And then you get them to look at the maps, and when they see what they can, the information that they can glean from them, you're gonna make it something practical and useful for them, and let them, then they'll see that, wow, you know, we can get a really good look at what we're doing, and we can maybe make good decisions about where things go. I mean, those, I mean, it's a struggle, but those are just things that I'm gonna be trying, you know, to, to, to bring them into use, find a use for them, other than just a curriculum. I, just want, I want to mention just on that that I think people to actually see what it looks like in a classroom becomes really critical. Because if you have some teachers that are actually being very successful with different aspects that you think others are not, bringing people in to see what it looks like and then conversations around that, that really clarifies a great deal. Because we can really look at material and what it should be, but it's when you're looking at video and you're looking or you're actually in somebody else's classroom seeing how it's done, I think there's so much learning. But you know, hear teachers talking about curriculum, I get so excited. Yeah. I mean, like, well, that just like really gets me going because I'm going, oh, I think we should have these, I think we should be adding these emotions, you know, to this. And you hear them getting to talk and all of a sudden, something that they care about. But you need to prepare, Simply. you need to provide the opportunities to do that and you need to have this open. I was just going to say that my maps address both how and what. Um, you know, how they teach it because if I have a teacher who goes on maternity leave like I'm going to have this year, it might be a nice idea if you have somebody coming in to, to see how they did it just to get some ideas. Um, we do have a techniques column in our or in our maps because we could, we could create as many columns as we wanted to. So it was a nice way just to put down how they might teach it. We're still in the creation phases, but that's my, that's my goal is to at least, what are some techniques that this person used? And that's a great professional development tool right there because someone had a technique, this person didn't know about that technique, maybe they might try that technique. And in terms of, I, I try and model good behavior all the time. So I'm constantly asking teachers, how are the maps going? What can I do to help you out? I can see, like Francesca can see grades. I can see how they're doing on their maps. I can see when they last logged in. So if I see a teacher who hasn't logged in for maybe a couple of weeks, I might say, hey, what can I do to help you out with the maps? Uh, how are the essential questions going? Just kind of keep it on their mind a little bit because it's easy, just like that curriculum on the shelf, to just forget about it if it's not kept in the forefront. So I try and keep that on their minds as much as I possibly can. We kind of need to wrap up here. Um, so I want to thank... Um, Lillian, Al, Rosa, and Ken for being panelists today, and you for coming. Um, obviously, we could spend a three-hour session or a whole week talking about all this stuff. Um, 
So uh, an hour and 15 minutes, or, you know, it's kind of brief, but um, we're so glad that you came. And uh, if you have any questions and you want to speak to any of us at the end, feel free to stop up and enjoy the rest of the conference.